You're listening to Hebrews to Revelation, Lesson 5. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Chapter 2 of the next segment, verses 5 through 18, continues on. Hebrews 2, 5 to 18. Call this section, Jesus, Our Empathetic Hero. Jesus, Our Empathetic Hero. What do you say to Christians who feel defenseless in a hostile world? People who feel that God would be far off, indifferent to their needs, that they're unimportant, unseen by God. That's the question. Well, one thing that Hebrews says is, look at Jesus. That's the answer from chapter 1. The second answer is, Jesus looks at you. Jesus shares our humanity. He shares our weakness. He shares our weaknesses to identify with us, but also, not simply to identify with them, but to lead us out of them. There is a saying, misery loves company. That's about half true. There's a better one, and that is that misery loves relief. Jesus gives us company, but not just to commiserate. Sometimes when you commiserate with somebody, you can get miserable too, right? That's a play on words intended. The words do come from the same. To commiserate is to feel misery with somebody. We don't want somebody just to feel misery with us. We want them to feel our pain, as a politician sometimes says, but not just to feel it, but to lead us out of it. That's what Jesus does. Now, he does this, this passage teaches, as our hero, but he's an odd or a different kind of hero. He is our empathetic hero. Now, if you think about this, most heroes are not empathetic. Most heroes, most people who are truly great at something, are so good and so far above the average person that they can hardly even communicate with them. Let me put it to you this way. I am, at best, mediocre in the computer world. And when I have a problem or don't understand something on my computer, I do not want to talk to a computer genius. I want to talk to somebody who's just medium ahead of me. Because a computer genius says, look, you see, just have to press this and touch this and this function key and that, and don't you see it's in the manual, page 136, why don't you get it? See? They don't say that. They're too polite. But what they mean is it's so simple, it's so easy, and I'm saying I got lost back at step two. And would you please repeat it, and then they repeat it, and they just say it louder and faster as if that's going to help. You know? I want somebody who just solved that problem yesterday. Oh, I know. I just fought with that. See, then they wrestled with it. They commiserate. The hero of computer worlds are so far ahead of me, they can't help me. Well, somebody's a little bit ahead. Now, here's the great thing about Jesus. He's way ahead of us, unlike most. He is way ahead, but he is still sympathetic. That's what this passage is pointing out. Most people are either strong or empathetic. The most unpleasant people are people with really high IQs because they can't get over how dumb you are. See? Now, Jesus had a really high IQ, but he never thought we were dumb. Right? 
Okay, let's see what it says. Uh, the big picture then uh, goes like this. Jesus is still being shown in his supremacy. Verses 5 and 16 are both after the superiority of Jesus. He's actually still working on the idea that Jesus is greater than angels. Look at verse 5. It is not to angels that he is subjected the world to come. Verse 16. Surely it is not angels he helps. See that? That's called an inclusio, by the way. It's a little way of telling you that what fits between the two parts all goes together. We'll see some more of those, I think, in our semester together. So he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus. And his, uh, his first theme is that Jesus, as our empathetic hero, is, well, is great and greater than the world. Let's take a look at verses 5 through 9. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, this section is starting up again with the idea that everything is going to be subject to Jesus. You see how we have this little interlude of application, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 1 ended, verse 13, with sit at my right hand. Jesus hears this from God. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. And this is now he's picking that up again. The supremacy of Jesus, verse 9, uh, points it out that everything will be subject to him. But now when I say that, uh, there is a sort of a, a question that arises here. The question is, what exactly is chapter 2, verses 5 and following about? Do you see that there's a question here? Psalm uh, chapter 2, verses 5 is quoting something again. Do you know what it's quoting? Okay, it is quoting Psalm 8. And what is Psalm 8 about? Do you know Psalm 8? What's the topic or the referent of Psalm 8? It's all about mankind. You turn back to Psalm 8 and you see this very clearly. Psalm 8 is about mankind. No, I can't find Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Then he goes on to praise God for the work of his hands, of his fingers, the moon and the stars. And what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. Now that, what is man and son of man, are really two words for the same thing. A man and a son of a man. Uh, son of man in the Old Testament is not what it means in the New Testament referring to Jesus. But son of man refers to the sons of people. And a son of a person is a person. That's the ordinary meaning of son of man in the Bible. And so as he exalts God for his creation, he looks at the, at the moon and the stars, and he looks at the greatest of all God's creation, crowned with glory and honor, mankind. 
And he says about mankind that it is mankind's destiny to rule the world for God. Do you believe that? It is your destiny, you are created to rule the world for God. That's what he made you for. That's what he made Adam and Eve for. That was his original purpose, that he would not have to come down and rule the world, but God would rule for us. Do you believe that? It's not always easy to see, is it? I mean, I have a hard time ruling my own desk sometimes. I have a hard time ruling my own car. I can't keep dirt out of my car. You'd think, as small as a car is, you could handle that. My own phone, I can hardly rule that sometimes. My backyard, I have a hard time ruling that. I mean, some people actually got so bad one year that I said, I don't have weeds in my backyard. I'm fostering biodiversity. That was the line that I used when, when the grass was about 7% of what was going on in my backyard that particular year. It's a little better than that by now. Um, that's our destiny is to rule the world for God. At present, however, we don't see that. That's what he says. But we do see Jesus. The fact that we don't see it doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. Let me just add something else. I was just reading this a couple of days ago. Have you heard the name Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody? Do you know that name? Abraham Kuyper, how many know that name? Okay, fair number of you. They were born the same year, 1837, and they, they became prominent Christian leaders really pretty much the same year, 1877. You could date it to 1875 and so on. D.L. Moody said that the world is like a sinking ship. And his goal is to rescue as many souls, as many bodies from that ship as possible and throw them into the lifeboat. And the world is going down the drain. All you can do is save souls off a sinking world. More or less the same time, Abraham Kuyper is the one who said what maybe some of you have heard in different settings, but he's the originator of the idea. There is no part of the universe of which God does not say it is mine. That's Abraham Kuyper. And Kuyper founded a political party. He started a university. He ran a newspaper, as well as being a theologian and a writer of theological books and a pastor. He also had a breakdown at the age of 39 or 41 or something. I forget which. When, then he realized maybe he should do them all, but not all simultaneously. <laughs> all the world is mine, but it didn't mean Kuyper had to solve the whole thing all at once. Um, so, two perspectives. Some people, that's part of what it means to be reformed, some people understand that the reform perspective is God is sovereign over all, which means ruling over all. And we're harking back to this. This is a biblical idea. I think D.L. Moody did a lot of good, but I think he was wrong on this point. The world is not like a sinking ship. The world is like God's big, beautiful backyard. It's a wrecked backyard right now, but it is God's domain. So, that's our destiny. That's what we seek, but we don't see it now. We don't see that. Now, there's a little bit of a, of a question, if you look at this passage, as to exactly what is going on in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Is this describing, is this passage, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, is this passage describing people? Or is it describing Jesus? Or is it somehow doing both? Now, I'm going to tell you that, that in the final analysis, it's doing both. When you start off with verse 5, it reads like, and it is really, a description of mankind. It is the destiny of mankind 
to, uh, to be crowned with glory and honor and, to, and everything to be under our feet. But, but then in verse 8, it gets a little bit strange. Because in verse 8, although this seems to be about mankind, and it's quoting Psalm 8, which is about mankind, in verse 8 it says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. That's a strong statement. We can hardly see how that could apply to mankind. Maybe it was God's original purpose for mankind, right? But now that the fall has taken place, in fact, in a very real way, we're doing anything but subjecting. We're actually rebelling against God. And so it doesn't really seem to fit. Are you with me? It, doesn't really, it seems originally it's about mankind, but it doesn't quite fit the way things actually are. And then we realize that, no, it's, it's really about Jesus, who is the true man. He's the one man that fulfills the destiny of mankind. It's, Jesus is the one for whom it's true God left nothing that is not subject to him. We see Jesus. Even him, it's not obvious that everything is subject to him. You see that last phrase in verse 8? At present, we don't see everything subject to him. That really applies to Jesus, doesn't it? We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Seems to be about mankind, really about Jesus. But if you think about it yet one more time, it's not simply about Jesus. It is about Jesus and those whom he brings with him. Because that's where the passage goes next. It's also pointing out that Jesus doesn't just do this on his own, but rather he was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Why did he suffer death? He suffered death for our sake. It says it right here, that he might taste death for everyone. And not only did he taste death for us, but we might say he tasted victory for us. See what it says here in the following verses. He didn't just get this victory by himself, but, verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory. See, he had this glory. We should have had it. We lost it, the glory of ruling and being crowned. But then he got it, and now he brings us with him to glory, verse 10 says. And then in verse 11 it says, that this author of our salvation is, is um, verse 11, making men holy. And we're of the same family. So he doesn't just win this on his own, but he's creating a family. We're in his family. And then in the next verse, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. He says in verse 13, here am I and the children God has given me. So he's winning this victory. But he's also bringing us along. The passage is about Jesus, the true man, and his reconstitution of humanity. Only in Christ do we attain our destiny of ruling the world for God. We, it's almost laughable at times, and I kind of want it to be silly. It's almost laughable to say we rule the world for God. And in fact, in ourselves, it would, it's only funny because if you stop laughing, you start crying. But in Christ, it's true. In Christ, we're members of his family. We have attained the victory with Christ. He was lowered 
so that he might be exalted. In fact, in this passage is even um, a tiny little summary of the life of Christ here. His incarnation, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. Then his exaltation, you crowned him with glory and honor. And then his triumph. Okay. Now let's go a little bit further while we have yet a, a bit of time to, uh, to look at what happens uh, next in, terms, in Hebrews 2 in terms of the description of Jesus. There's another aspect to the description of Jesus' work. And that comes up in verse 10. Verse 10 says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now I want to tell you that word author is based on a Greek word, archegos, which can be translated a number of ways. It can mean author, like writer. Or it can mean a hero, or a champion, or a pioneer, or a trailblazer. Now, I'm going to suggest that maybe the best word, not a common word by any means to us, is a trailblazer. For one thing, it, it, the Greek word, the parts of it mean sort of chief leader. And it can be used as someone who leads someone along a path, Okay. But the idea is, in verse 10, that Jesus is sort of our heroic trailblazer. That is, that Jesus is this one who is far above us. He's exalted. He's powerful. But he's also caring for us. He wins the battle for us. He blazes the trail to eternity for us. But he doesn't just win the battle. He comes back and clears a path and helps us through that same path. There is a motif in the Bible. It is not a common motif, but this hero or champion motif is found here and there throughout the Bible. The fact that something isn't common doesn't mean it isn't important. And this is one of the unique contributions of Hebrews for understanding of our Christian faith. So, a champion. A champion is one who fights for God's cause, for God's people. A champion would be, ideally... Uh, someone who represented God's people. There's a case of this in the Old Testament where one fights for many. You know what it is? It's a story of David and Goliath, absolutely, in which Goliath goes out as the champion, the hero, the representative of his people, and David goes out as the champion, the hero of his people. And In fact, it is an extremely strong uh, type of, if I may use that word, or foreshadowing of the work of Christ, in that there is one who consciously arrays himself for the sake of the destruction of God's people. They were invading Israel at the time, and not, I think, as I recall, about 10 miles, not more than 10 miles from Jerusalem, maybe 15, seeking to dominate, to destroy God's people, to destroy God's anointed. David had just been anointed by God, and who was taunting the Israelites, who will dare to fight me? And David realized that this is not flesh, an issue of flesh and blood, but this is an issue in which a, a pagan has taunted the armies of the living God. He's taunted God. And so he went out in God's strength as the one representative and defeated God's enemies and blazed the trail for a great victory that day. There are other references to that in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, in 2 Samuel 3, for those of you who like to check things out, there's another a representative warfare there. It's not with just uh, 
two, but with a handful of men fighting. God himself calls himself a divine warrior. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, verses 24 to 26, which says, well, I'll say 25 and 26. Uh, this is what the Lord says. Well, I will read 24 while you turn. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? So there's a combat scenario. This is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors. Plunder will be retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. So here's God saying, uh, you predicting, among other things, the fall of Israel, you will be taken captive, but I will, I will fight those who fight you. I will be your warrior. I will release you from the clutches of the warriors who have grasped you as their plunder. That's God's promise. I will, then he goes on to say in warrior language, all right, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They'll be drunk on their own blood as with wine, and all the world, all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. Your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And in fact, Jesus himself, in the pages of the Gospels, on a couple of occasions, calls himself a warrior as well. Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 20, uh, describes that. So Hebrews is harking back to Luke. Uh, by the way, if you nobody's really asked, but sometimes I have a hunch that it is indeed Luke who wrote Hebrews because of parallels uh, like this. There are quite a handful of others. Uh, chapter 11, I'll start with verse 20. Jesus says, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his house, his possessions are safe. Now, who's the strong man? Do you know? The strong man is Satan. A strong man is guarding his house. His house would be the domain of Satan, the domain of evil. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his spoils. Who's the stronger man? The stronger man is Jesus. So Jesus uses this divine warrior motif found, I'm saying to you, 1 Samuel 17, Isaiah 49, also some other places in Isaiah it's found in Luke. It's also found once parallel passage in Matthew. And here it is again. And the idea is that Jesus is indeed a champion, a hero, a trailblazer. And he has come to bind the strong man. He has come to cast out demons, to spoil Satan, to deprive him of his power. And yet, paradoxically, verse 14 says, he, he wins his greatest battle by losing. The loss is, since the children have flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity so that by his death, look at this, by his death he might destroy. He won by dying. By his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Satan has a quasi-legitimate hold on us. A quasi-legitimate hold I know we're doing a lot of Bible flipping today. I think this is the last time I'm going to do it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. The hold is that we are guilty. 
and we deserve to be punished. That's, that's his accusation. A loud voice has come from heaven. The accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. He accuses us day and night. He has the right to say this back from Zechariah chapter 3, actually. He accuses us of being guilty, and he has a point. We are guilty. We are liable to judgment. How do we overcome? Revelation 12:11 goes on to say, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And Revelation is in coherence with Hebrews, which says Jesus broke the power of Satan, broke the power of death by dying. That is to say, he came as a substitution for us. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers, even if he has to die to call us his brothers. This is the thing. He is our hero, but he also identifies with us. He says, we're his brothers, we're in his family, we're his children, we're both his brothers and his children, both simultaneously. He is not ashamed to identify with. Can you relate to this? How many of you had a younger brother or sister you were ashamed to identify with? Please go away. You're embarrassing me around my friends. Raise your hand high. Okay, if you were the younger brother or sister, how many of you deliberately tried to embarrass your older brother or sister at various times? Okay, it's very easy to become ashamed. And if we could be ashamed of our younger brother or sister, I guarantee you Jesus could be ashamed of us. I refrain from putting Christian bumper stickers on my cars for two reasons. One, when you take them off, they make a mess. The other is my driving isn't up to it. I'm not sure that I want the cause or the name of Christ to be identified with me and my driving. We might say God would be ashamed to have his cause identified with my driving. But guess what, folks? If you carry the name Christian, God is identifying with you. You may say, my driving isn't up to it, but guess what? Your whole life needs to be up to it. See, anytime anybody knows you're a Christian, then your whole life is one in which Jesus is not embarrassed, although we can imagine him being, he's not embarrassed to identify with you. That's the thing about Jesus, our great hero. He is so far above us, but he also understands us. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.